Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pivot Point. What an exciting episode I have for you today. The guest I have today is Bill Schnee. He's an internationally renowned producer, engineer, and mix master. But uh, before I tell you more about that, how's everybody doing? We're in fall. I'm back from Santa Fe. Uh, Had a great drive up, great drive back. But I got to tell you, have you ever gone on vacation and you come back and you have this like rough reentry into the reality of real life. Like you're on vacation. It's pretty magical. Then you come back and it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> LA. <laughs> oh, I still struggle with trying to make LA home. And, uh, you know, it's funny, <laughs> Bill mentions that he has lost his love affair with LA some time ago. And, uh, but he'll tell you that. So anyway, life is good. We had a beautiful rainstorm yesterday, cleared the air. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day here. And um, also, I want to mention, and you know, those who listen to the show, you know I don't get into a whole lot of politics, but every now and again, I will say something that I think is important to be said. And that is, uh, you know, I'm a member of Local 700. I'm a member of Local 47, the Musicians Union. I'm a SAG-AFTRA member. And Local 700, the Editors Guild, along with the other guilds in the IATSE Union, are having trouble with negotiations this year, so much so that negotiations broke down. It's a shame that we have to even be in these positions, that you have to have unions to get fair wages and fair work conditions um, and get a piece of the pie that you're creating. But that's life. That's what we have. But what I want to mention is just how proud I am that 82% of the available members voted. That's a big turnout. And 98% of them voted yes to a strike. That doesn't mean we're going to strike. It just means, should the president of IATSE feel that negotiations have gotten to the point where we can even have a discussion, then they're going to strike. That's how I guess it works. I really don't know from that point on where it goes. But the point is, is that 82% turnout with a 98% yes says that a lot of workers, we're talking thousands of people, are unhappy in their work condition and things need to change. So with that said, keep an eye out, see how things go. And if you see anybody demonstrating, you know, beep the horn, give them support. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's talk about the show. I got to be honest, I was a little nervous about interviewing Bill. And here's why. Bill, as a producer, engineer, mix master, has received over 125 gold and platinum records. That's a lot. He has more than 50 top 20 singles that, okay, so listen to this. He's worked with Barbara Streisand. He's worked with the Jacksons, Rod Stewart, Steely Dan, Whitney Houston, Dire Straits. I mean, the gamut of people he has worked with. That's an amazing career. So I was nervous about how to talk with Bill, but honestly, he is so down to earth, very kind, very, I would say, humble. And we had a great conversation. So look, Bill has this book. It's called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. And it's true. I love the book. 
I'm about three quarters done. I listened to it on audiobook, but you know, of course, you can read it. It's available as a book. I highly recommend it. It's a great read. You know, the show's all about people in the arts. And um, here is somebody who has interfaced with so many artists and helped them get their artistic expression out into the world in the best way that it could possibly be. And that is his artistic expression. Okay. Here you go, everybody. This is Bill Schnee and I chatting it up. Check this out. Bill, so nice to see you. Yeah. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Sure, sure. Glad to be here. Are you in Nashville now? No, right now I'm in California. Oh, okay. I'm All in right. San, San Diego. Oh, nice. All right. Very good. Yeah, I'm in Culver City. Oh. So I see that you moved to Nashville, though. Yeah, three years ago. Okay. I lived in Nashville for about 17 years. Really? Yeah. And uh, moved to California in 09. That's when I moved here. So why the move to Nashville, Bill? Well, uh, you know, I had, um, <laughs> there was this, <laughs> as my joke always goes, there was this thing called a record business and it worked really well. I remember that. It was really cool. <laughs> and, you know, and I was very fortunate. I had a very blessed time with it and I had a nice, wonderful studio and everything was working until one day it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, first I sold the studio, then I got cancer. Uh, well, first I sold the studio, then I built a mix room in Burbank. Okay. To do that. And then I got cancer and then uh, got healed of cancer. And then the uh, next step was um, they, <laughs> they sold the building. Once when my lease was up, I had to leave and I, build another one. Oh, God, really? Yeah, so, forget uh, that. My wife and I thought, you know, uh, I'd kind of lost my love affair for Los Angeles quite a while ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we did the great experiment. We call it the great experiment. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I got there, I knew it was working. It took my wife about six, eight months to convince her. Okay. But, um, the worst part being leaving friends and family. But, yeah. you know, we're here three or maybe even four times this year. Now that COVID's over, we did it the, before COVID. So we're still here enough to see the kids and, uh, nice. and friends and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really great. What area of Nashville? Are Franklin. You in? Oh, great. Yeah. Well, geez, that's a beautiful area. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I, I, you know, I, I'm uh, <laughs> the great experiment with the uh, real estate agent was um, get me a house that's easy to sell uh, in case this doesn't work in two or three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he said, okay, well, you're not going to stay in Davidson County because the schools are crap. And uh, mm -hmm. so right away it was, Going, going south. And uh, yeah, we just ended up in Franklin. I really like it anyway, a lot. You know, it's a lot more laid back than Nashville, which is, you know, good news, yeah. bad news of the city's growth. But oh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing what's happened in the city. Um, I moved there in 92, ended up living in Brentwood. And right across the street was um, Alan Jackson. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know anything about country music. So, yeah, that was pretty wild. So tell me about this cancer thing. What happened there? Uh, it was, uh, there was a lump under my, found a lump. I went to the ENT. What's this? He said, it looks like it's a, a salivary gland that's infected. Take these antibiotics and call me when it's done. Called him up. Uh, I said, is it done? No, it's still there. He said, oh, okay, go see Dr. Ho at Cedars. He's the head of head and neck cancers. Cancers? Cancers? What, what do you mean? And uh, so, yeah, it was uh, throat cancer, not from smoking, but from the virus. I never, my, both of my parents smoked. So as a result, I never tried one cigarette in my life. Mm, okay. And uh, yeah, that was it. But uh, it, you know, they, what they told me was, look, the it's from the virus. The, is, 
is the great news. 90% we're going to get it, 90% it won't come back. But it is one of the worst treatments in cancer uh, with the radiation in the head and chemo. The combination of those two things, it's going to beat you up pretty badly. And it did. Oh, but, wow. uh, you know, here's, here's what's kind of funny. So um, uh, I met the rest of the team. The chemo oncologist was my favorite doctor, a Jewish doctor. My dad was a Jewish doctor. He, he went to Princeton in business and came out and went on Wall Street. And a couple of years of that, and he said uh, that I don't want to spend my life here. So he went back to medical school. But the radiation oncologist, uh, he was the youngest, by the way. The oldest doctor was 37. He was 34. Um, but, uh, uh, but I'm telling you, with this new the technology, that's what you want. You don't want a 60-year-old mm -hmm. guy playing catch-up, I, I think. These guys mm -hmm. were brilliant. But the, the radiation oncologist, he had an undergrad degree that you might not expect. Recording engineering. <laughs> I, I said, Zach, what are the odds that there is any, any doctor with that undergrad degree, let alone my doctor? And he went, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? I went, yeah, it's crazy. All right. That's amazing. That Wow, man. Life is funny this way, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I in your book, you were a trumpet player. Uh, and a saxophone player is that right uh yeah i started uh i started uh on trumpet and uh had a too much problem with the embouchure so i went to sax and then later on went to keyboards uh, uh which ended up i suppose being my main instrument but i'm uh i'm not a, ha a half bad drummer except that uh i rush a bit but uh <laughs> so kind of a jack of all master of none as a musician yeah, no, I hear that. I'm a I'm a trumpet player. In fact, I got my two horns here, and I totally understand about the embouchure. It's like, why choose an instrument where you gotta put your face to a hunk of metal? It's, it's just, <laughs> I don't understand. But um, and you grew up in Phoenix, right? And uh, was there music in your household? Was uh, your folks music? Like, what what drew you to music? Well, I was uh, I was an only child. And uh, some of my friends that were only children uh, seemed to love it. I didn't particularly care for it because uh, it was kind of lonely for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the radio became my friend. Uh, so I got immersed in music at an early age, uh, just listening to the radio. And what was fascinating back then, and we're talking uh, the middle 50s, is that uh, the you know the this jockey held all the power there was no playlist yeah. by a station telling the disc jockey what to play so they could play whatever they wanted and you learned like in the six to nine hour this guy liked a certain kind of music and nine to midnight that kind of thing but even within that uh, within the scope of their three hour if that's what it was uh, session they mm -hmm. they could play whatever they wanted and so i i was turned on to a wide variety of uh, different musical styles, which uh, has really been wonderful for me. And I'm very fortunate that in my career, I've been able to work and actually be pretty darn successful in every genre of music. So it worked yeah. out great. But that's how it all, that's how the music thing started. And if you want me to keep going, it would be that my parents moved to Los Angeles when I was 16 for uh -huh. my senior year of high school. And I found, met some guys that were starting a band. And I said, uh, do you do you uh, do you think an organ would work and they said yes oh i didn't answer your question was there music in my house apart from the radio yes my mother played the organ oh, uh, my father okay. listened to classical music mm. uh, but uh, but that, that's the extent of it mm -hmm. so anyway the, i i joined this band and um and we you know uh did what young bands do we we started writing songs that we thought were pretty good and we started playing wherever we wherever we could bowling alleys and sock hops and whatnot and uh we decided to <clears throat> excuse me we decided to make a demo of our three best songs and we did that in a, some small studio and one of the kids mothers knew someone who knew someone that was in the record business oh, and that someone was gary usher uh gary lived by the wilson family uh in hawthorne the beach boy wilson family mm -hmm. And in fact, he wanted to be a Beach Boy and uh, didn't make it. But he did write two very successful songs with Brian, 409 and oh, In My wow. Room. And uh, so Gary heard our, he heard our demo and liked it and called us in for a meeting. 
and uh, basically signed us to Decca Records. He had a new production deal with Decca Records, and he signed us to Decca. Mm-hmm. And uh, in those days, you were signed for four sides, they called them, uh, mm-hmm. four songs. You went in and recorded four songs. And if one of them happened to become a hit, then you ran in and recorded six more to make the album. Well, sadly to say, there never was a L18's album. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. and by the way, I, I, every time I f- say that, the L18's, I think, how in the world did the record company allow a young a bunch of young kids to right? limit themselves with a name like that? I mean, uh-huh. if we had been successful, uh, you know, and what? We're in our 30s and 40s going around as the L18s? I don't get it, but whatever. Yeah. Did anything happen then with the Beach Boys, with with uh, with Brian Wilson, or no? Any of the no, we, we, we. In spite of the fact that that he was my idol, I just thought those uh, that his records were incredible. Actually, even better than the Beatles when they came out for for quite a while. Uh, th- that would change eventually, but um, yeah, our our band actually sounded somewhere between. Uh, the, the new English movement and mm-hmm. and the Beach Boys. Mm, I see. You know, I I remember reading in your book that um, there was this transition between being a musician and getting behind the console, and there was somebody who was very instrumental in helping right. you there, Richie Podler. And yeah. tell me a little bit about that. Tell me how that transition happened for you. Okay. Well, we recorded uh, for Decca with Gary Usher producing us, we recorded at Capitol Studio B mm-hmm. and at United Western. Those were uh, some of the, uh, two of the best studio groups in LA still to this day. And on our first session, Gary Usher brought in a guitarist to augment the band, a guy named Richie Podler, who we saw instantly was a phenomenal musician. And then uh, we talked with him uh, after the session and whatnot, and he mentioned that he was, uh, he had just built a, another studio. He was an engineer as well and wanting to produce. And so when we got dropped from DECA, I went to his studio and told him the sad news. And he mm-hmm. said, oh, I can get you guys another record deal. Go see this guy, Mike Curb. He's going to go places. And uh, Mike Curb certainly did. But in the meantime, we, we got signed again. And we went to Richie's little funky studio, which I say funky because it was compared to these very polished, you know, studios that we'd been in, Western and and Capitol. And went out and recorded the first track, came into the control room. And as I remember this like it was yesterday, uh, as the music was playing, I just looked up at the speakers uh, and absorbed what was happening. Mm. And I felt something emotionally from our band that I had never felt in those other great studios. Mm. Uh, something that had, it was just so much better uh, on an emotional level. And I, I literally turned to him right then and there, pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me to do this? And he said, no, I'm teaching Cooper. Go out there and do another take. <laughs> and um, uh, I, so, <clears throat> but that was the moment that I, I knew I wanted to do that. I, mm. I want to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And eventually he did teach you or did you learn on your own? How well, actually, I went off and learned on my own. Uh, I found a guy that believed in me who was a, an engineer and a maintenance man in a studio, Toby Foster. And he uh, by now I had uh, gone back to college. I, I dropped out of college uh, with the L.A. teens after the first semester, because mm-hmm. after all, we were going to be stars. Sure. That was that was the first time the record business lied to me. It wouldn't be the last. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so to to make my uh, my dad happy, I, I went back to college, took you know, and and uh, started studying. But but this Toby Foster, every day after college, I would drive to hit the studio he was working at, and and he just gave me all the basics. He was a great teacher, very patient. And would t- let's just listen to all of my questions, mm-hmm. uh, and I would just lay him on him until he couldn't take it anymore. And he'd say, good night, see you tomorrow. And because all of my aptitude was in math and science, and uh, in fact, I, w- I started at Cal Poly in aerospace, the, but um, 
where that met the musical side of me, where the left brain and right brain met, engineering just came incredibly easy to me. Mm. So, and what seems <laughs> impossible uh, in less than three years from the time of that aha moment with Richie Podler, where I knew that that's what I wanted to do, I spent two months begging him to be hired, which finally paid off. And he finally did hire me. And um, pretty crazy at that because he threw me in on the third day, I, he gave me a demo to do the first day and I, I succeeded to be successful. And, and then a different demo the next day and I was successful. And the third day he said, here, come tonight and record Three Dog Night. And I, huh? And at that <laughs> point, Three Dog Night was working on their second record, you know, about to become one of the biggest bands in the country. And it, it, Richie wasn't producing them. He had been engineering them. And their producer, Gabriel Meckler, was his biggest client because he also... Uh, was producing Steppenwolf that Richie mm. was also engineering. And so why he would throw as the owner of the studio and the engineer of these records, why he would throw a young punk in with his top act, top producer. If I'd fallen on my nose, he would have looked like an idiot. Gabriel yeah. could have really pissed off at him and walked out. But I managed to swim that first night. So I said, you know, what did Gabriel say? Oh, he said, you were great. Okay, what now? Well, come in again tonight. So I went in a second night, cut wow. another track. Same thing. Come in a third night. Third night, I got in trouble. They asked for something in the guitar that I couldn't do. Undoubtedly, a, a guitar effect that Richie, who, as I said, was a phenomenal guitarist, still is, um, that uh, I couldn't do. But So I had to call him up, and uh, he came down and took over recording. Uh, but uh, that was the end of my tracking with them. But I did do more overdubs on the album and and got started. And I was I was almost happier because now I could sit in the control room and watch this yeah. this work. Did Three Dog Night have any issues when you that first night for you? Not a bit. It oh, uh, it, how, it was shocking amazing. to me because I was scared out of my. You can imagine. I'm, sure, you know, I, absolutely. I've never recorded anyone that even a even thought about being a star and these guys had already had a hit and whatnot well but they were just as nice and open as they could be wow i love that because that's how we get to learn yeah that's how we get the opportunities now did you have to start from scratch did you have to do mic setups and block out the room or was a lot of that already set up for you no um I, well i had i had seen what richie was doing before I, you know, uh, uh, with the, with our band anyway, and things were a lot simpler than, uh, needless to say, but no, I did, we did the set in those days. In fact, you know, there was quite often a daytime session and a nighttime session, and mm. you had to tear things down, uh, you know, in the day and at, at the end of the night session as well. So it all just kind of worked out. Um, and then you're saying that, uh, you, didn't finish up because Richie had to come in, but did they give you um, a credit on the jacket? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Okay. Um, what can well, I say? How, uh, Richie made that... sure Richie made sure that I got a gold record, but uh, uh, somehow he forgot to put my name on there for those uh, two tracks and whatever overdubs I did. But that's okay. Uh, that's that's okay. Believe me, it was well well worth it. In fact, my son, who's starting off in uh, uh, composition for film, and uh, the first thing that he got was a, a, a documentary that Bob Zemeckis's wife had done, where mm -hmm. Bob was the executive producer. And I I told him, you know, it wasn't paying very much. And I said, honestly, if if you pay them, yeah. <laughs> If you pay them that, it's worth it because the opportunity is worth much more than the, uh, the anything you'll make. And Richie, in fact, later on would tell me as he was instructing me uh, in the months to come, one of the many things he told me was the credits that you get are more important than the money you make from a gig. The money you're going to spend, it'll be gone. The credit is going to be there and going to help you get the next gig and so on. That is words of wisdom right there and so true. Credits are everything. With not getting a credit on Three Dog Night, what was your first credit, and how did you how did you go from kind of uh, ghosting, if you will, engineering on the Three Dog Night album into your real first credit album? How did that happen? Um, let's see. 
uh, the, the, one of the acts that I worked with there was a group called Smith. And they, uh, um, I did very little on the first album. Uh, Richie's other engineer, Bill Cooper, had done most of it. But I did uh, the mono mix back then. You know, we always did mm -hmm. a mono mix because AM radio was, was yep. key. We didn't have FM yet. And, um, uh, and I don't know if I got a credit on that or not, but I know I'm pretty sure on the album I got credit because uh, mm. I did do some engineering on the record itself. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the clients I worked, met there at, at American was a, a, a producer named Joe Porter. And I went on to work with him uh, on, on several things. The first record we did that was a hit was a group called The Free Movement. And the song was called I Found Someone of My Own. And I think it went to 10, top 10. It was oh, a top wow. 10. And then uh, I did some more recordings with uh, mixing, actually, with Joe Porter uh, from Motown. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they, Motown didn't give me credit. <laughs> uh, they were, it was always special thanks. Uh, you know, they gave the Motown engineer who had recorded it. They gave him, they called him the engineer. And instead of calling me the mixing engineer, they just said special thanks, Bill Schnee. So that, that would come back later on when... A few years later, I think about 1975, uh, Motown, Suzanne DePass, who was Barry Gordy's right-hand girl, really ran mm -hmm. the company, uh, called me to do a, a live album with Marvin Gaye. And mm -hmm. uh, I went in to, the, to, the, uh, to her office and I said, uh, okay, but I have, uh, I have a couple of, I, I called them requests, but they were mm -hmm. really demands. Mm -hmm. I said, uh, number one, I want credit you know, as recorded by Bill Schnee on the album. Mm -hmm. And number two, I want a shot at mixing it. If Marvin doesn't like to mixes and uses someone else, that's fine. But I at least want a shot. And, uh, you know, one out of two isn't bad. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> I got the, I got the credit. All right. But I didn't get a chance to mix it, mm. which is quite unfortunate. Although f great part of the story is, um, uh, 75, 80, about 20 years later, 19 years later, Motown is sold. Barry Gordy has sold Motown. They have a girl that runs what they call special products division. And mm -hmm. this girl calls me up and said, there's a record that you did, you know, almost 20 years ago. And uh, I'd like to remix, have you remix it. And I went, what? Wow. <laughs> I, to this day, I've never heard of, that was a successful record. I, I, I've never heard of them remixing a record 20 years later. But I was really thrilled for the opportunity. Sure. And, and it's really kind of funny, you know, the tapes came in and, you know, your handwriting doesn't change over time. So I saw my terrible handwriting on the uh -huh. track sheet that tells what all the instruments are. Oh, and your humor doesn't change either. Uh, it turns out that this was a, a one-shot deal at the Oakland Coliseum with the best R&B band you could possibly get. And then, in addition, a kicking horn section and a small string section. And so wow. on the track sheet, <clears throat> excuse me, when I wrote it out on the strings, I put an asterisk. And at the bottom of the sheet, I, the key was the other asterisk. And it said, good luck, because there was no <laughs> way you were going to get a string sound with a kicking R&B <laughs> band and a horn section like that. So, uh, but I was really thrilled to do the mix. I honestly do, uh, in, uh, <laughs> I really do believe in my heart of hearts. Yeah, it really was a better mix. But unfortunately, mm. Marvin was gone by then and never got mm -hmm. to hear it. Mm. So, um, and the remix, was that because it was going from analog to digital? Like what was behind that? I have no idea. I have wow. No idea. No, I mean, they were, you know, they were converting all the analog tapes to, uh, and it wasn't that it was to, to digital at that point for sure, <clears throat> but it wasn't like, it wasn't like it was that bad of a mix or anything. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. really wasn't. I mean, I, I'd like to say it was horrible, but it wasn't. I do think mine was better, but I, I have no idea. It doesn't make an ounce of sense. And I never heard about any, anything else that she did like that. It's very bizarre. Wow. That's, you know, you look back at life and the things that happen to you uh, that come your way just so serendipitously are amazing. To yeah. me. I mean, there are so many people that I've spoken to on this show that have had had circumstances like that where something just it was um I, I like to say it like this like uh, for me whenever i'm 
working uh, on a gig and I, okay, it's time for the next gig. And I start sowing my seeds. I'm like, oh, I'd like to go after that film or that film or that film. And then out of left field, the film comes. It's some other film that I wasn't even going after. And it turns out to be great people, a great project. And I never can understand how that works. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm convinced yeah. that if I didn't sow those seeds, this other thing wouldn't happen. Right. And and like and you as you know, they almost they seem to come out of the blue. Uh, I was at a dinner party last week with David Newman. I'm sure mm -hmm. you're familiar with David. Yep. And um, and he was we we got to talking about my son that's wanting mm -hmm. to do uh, film music film for film, and uh, he said you know the very same thing. He said it's just you know. It's you're always just one little gig away from something great, and you don't you have no idea that it's coming. It might no. you might sit there for weeks, months, whatever, and nothing, nothing, and then all of a sudden, it's like oh, and then there's this. Yeah, and did you find that was like that for you as an engineer? Um, I you know honestly, my my trek is so different than uh, almost everyone's. Um, in fact, when I when I built the, my studio and started training engineers, I honestly, I could not have written the book back then because I would never tell them how little dues I paid. Mm. Uh, when you consider the fact that I, I learned enough engineering in two and a half years to, to go from not knowing what a, you know, what an equalizer from a limiter was to working with, you know, a top act. Um, and, and I found the same thing in producing. I knew that I wanted to produce and I, I produced some good, really, I think really good records, uh, in the seventies and so on, but it wasn't until, uh, 76 when, uh, I did a band called Pablo Cruz and then, uh, you know, and then it got easy because, oh, this guy can produce, you know, I had mm -hmm. one, one A&R guy before that, that believed in me that, that had, you know, and he's in fact the one that suggested Pablo Cruz, but we had tried some other things before that. But, but yeah, uh, my, my journey was a little different than most, uh, mm, pretty accelerated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I find that when that happens, there are reasons for that. Um, one is you could handle it. You know, I think that uh, if you were not able to handle it, it would not have happened. It would have yeah. um, spurred it out. Um, and so there's there's a there's a a big gift there that's yeah. happened in your life. Yeah, and, for sure. And to that point, uh, it reminds me of. Um, so uh, I did a little stint at at CBS uh, as an engineer producer, and. Um, that's where I met Richard Perry, the great record producer, Richard Perry, who was doing Barbara Streisand. And I started working on a, the album and finished up recording and mixing uh, the Barbara Jones Streisand album. And the next year she was going to do a, uh, a concert uh, that CBS wanted recorded. And uh, I didn't, you know, I'd never recorded a live concert. I had no idea what to do, <laughs> you mm, know. Yeah. And uh, it was Richard that pushed me and said, no, no, you can do it. I know you can do it. I didn't have a clue that I could yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, I, but I went in and, and those one shots were the worst. Uh, Marvin Gaye was the same thing um, because they, uh, you know, you don't get any time to set up, I mean, to really do a proper uh, yeah. sound check you know you you mm -hmm. just get whatever the whatever they they because they they usually rehearse the orchestra somewhere else uh, a little bit before they get there and then they do a minimal minimal rehearsal sound check and that's when you have to get everything together and then that night you know a couple hours later the lights go out and the music starts so i was pretty <laughs> petrified but uh, i got through it i can imagine um i've done a little bit of front of house mixing not a lot uh, enough to be dangerous. And <laughs> I can't even imagine doing a live venue of that size and that scope. Uh, that I, I would definitely be petrified for sure. And I think I would um, I think I would start to find my the center of all the sound somewhere in the middle of the concert. <laughs> and I was like, I think I have it now. <laughs> it's, it's a little late. It's a little late. So things kind of progressed really well for you. Was there any kind of, um, and this is more on the emotional side, uh, head trip, like 
you know, I'm, I'm hot stuff or, uh, or will you always have a humble attitude? I can see that you, you're, uh, a grounded man, you have a, a really wonderful, um, it seems like a healthy attitude. Did, was that always with you? Is that something that kind of came through uh, the school of hard? Yeah. Works? I, I think, what, I think what worked for me was my insecurity. And, uh, you know, I, as I've worked with obviously lots and lots of creative people for 50, whatever years now, oh my gosh. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I see that, I, I think you could generalize and almost all of them, I'll be nice, uh, are insecure. And mm. uh, I recognize that I are one, as my wife mm-hmm. will be sure to tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, I think that insecurity did me did me well, because no, I've, I've never thought that I was all that uh, and a cup of chips, uh, as yeah. the British saying, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, not at all. So um, and then, you know, I, I realized pretty early on uh, that, uh, I have a gift. I, you know, I just know yeah. that I, that it, that I have a gift for balancing. And, uh, and, uh, once you know that it's a gift, it, it gets, it's kind of hard to, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I worked very hard to develop it, but mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to get all excited about it. Yeah. You can't take credit for something that yeah. has been given to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. I, I, uh, I asked the question just, um, because I find it interesting um, about even acknowledging that, let's just say music, the understanding of notes in that language. It's just, it's an internal knowing that's beyond me. Yeah. And, um, and I can see that that's how it is with you as an engineer, because you're capturing frequencies all throughout the spectrum, right? And you're able to know how to get a really great sound out of this, let's call it a, a cello, a wooden box with strings, <laughs> you know? And it sounds gorgeous. And having the knowledge as to how to bring that out, uh, what the right microphone is, how to capture that, record it, and mix it. Yes, you have to develop that craft, but it's a gift. Yeah. And I, I, I remember that, uh, that my, that mentor that I mentioned earlier that taught me all the basics, Toby Foster, uh, he, he uh, uh, people would talk to him about my, about me and my success. And Toby, Toby would always say, he doesn't do anything differently than anyone else does. It's just, it just sounds good. I mean, right yeah. away. And that's, that's how I've always looked at it. So you know, I, I, what can I say? But you're, yeah. uh, and I love that you picked the cello, which happens to be one of my favorite instruments. Uh, mm. uh, and um, yeah, it's it, it's it's wonderful to to be able to do those kind of things and and deal with with uh, you know, like I said, uh, trying to bring the most emotion to uh, the music, which mm-hmm. is what captured me in the first place. And you've had so many bands. I mean, I can't even list them all. That have come through the doors to be able to access what they're putting out as a creative human being. And um, I just can't imagine, like, I don't know, the Jacksons or uh, Barbara Streisand you mentioned and Neil Diamond and Michael Bolton. I mean, it just, you know, Huey Lewis. Like, ha, whew. Just to find the, the gem of each one of of their creative gifts and, and accentuate that is that's exciting to me. Just even thinking about that. Oh yeah. Very exciting. And, uh, I, I remember it was one of my, uh, assistant engineers that I trained, uh, back in the analog tape days. And he said that, uh, we were starting a session and he, he put the tape on the, on the real blank tape. And he said, you know, this is the canvas. And now, mm-hmm. you know, these guys that were all warming up on their instruments out in the studio, uh, you know, they're going to paint something really, be- hopefully really beautiful on this canvas. And I love that. I absolutely mm-hmm. love that thought because mm-hmm. that's, so today it's what's, it's plugging in a hard drive, but it's, it's the same yeah. thing. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Do you miss the analog boards, consoles? Um, 
Well, I mean, I still use an analog board to record as as often as I possibly can. Um, oh, no but in terms of analog recording, no, I don't miss it. You know, I yeah. went, I was, I went kicking and screaming into digital. I didn't like it, and that's because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and I was right, darn it, and the whole industry was wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but seriously, because early digital didn't sound very good. You no, know, it didn't. it didn't. We had lower sampling rates, bit rates. Uh, uh, filter technology has gotten better. Uh, A to D and D to A. The conversion technology has gotten better. You know, so much. It's not even you know, comparable. But mm. now that we're there, uh, you know, the analog was full of its own sets of problems. The yep. biggest one being analog tape had a sound. I mean, you it was the sound of music ever since mm. we got it from the Germans in, in the late 50s. It was the sound of music. Um uh, and because it, it does change the sound, uh, it, yeah. it was never a mirror. And but now high resolution digital, especially high, high resolution, like at 192, 24, 32 bits at 192, that is a mirror. That is for the mm. first time uh, I can, you know, and I'm very sensitive to uh, all that stuff. Uh, for the first time, what comes through the glass is exactly what can go out and, and be heard by anybody. Wow. So you're recording at 192. I was going to ask you if you're like at 96, but you, you're up there at 192. You doubled that. That's amazing. Well, what I, yeah. And what I've done uh, that I, what I've done that I'm looking for the financial backing, if anyone out there, uh, what I've done is I started a, uh, a, a live music company. I did records in the seventies and eighties that were direct to disc. That's where mm -hmm. you recorded one whole side of an album from you know, starting with cut one, then cut two, then cut three. There was no stopping because the it goes to a lathe that's cutting the mm -hmm. lacquer master that the mm -hmm. LPs will be made from. You know, you can't stop the lathe. So you just recorded one side of the album. And it was done, uh, it was done for fidelity purposes because at that time it was analog recording and you uh, you had a multi-track analog that would change the sound. And then after you did your overdubbing and everything, you mixed it down to another analog tape, which changed the sound a bit. And so you were eliminating two generations of analog tape mm -hmm. and the music only went through the electronics of the recording console one time from mm -hmm. the musicians right to the lathe, as opposed to from the musicians to the multi-track and then from the multi-track through the electronics again to the two-track. So they were known um if that first album i did that way was the biggest uh i think the biggest selling one uh was uh known in every hi-fi store around the country and soon the world because uh what's better to sell hi-fi equipment than the, the the best weak link there is and the weak link mm. has always been the source and that so here they had a better sounding lp to sell their their uh, hardware from Mm -hmm. So what I've got now, and I, I love live music. So mm -hmm. now it's uh, one song at a time, and um, but one song at a time, and it's recorded all live through proprietary uh, one ninety two converter, and uh, the stuff is just on a sonic level absolutely amazing. Wow! I bet. Holy cow! So do you get frustrated at all? And I and I. And I'll just say, I know I do when we're working on a film and we're recording and, you know, then you go to the dub and you're just making everything sound just beautifully and pristine. But you know that most of the time people are listening to them, you know, on these little earbuds. <laughs> and I mean, I get it. That technology is amazing. Like, you know, I've got these wind tones on and, um, you know, the frequency response is not bad. I actually can, I'm amazed I can hear bass in it. I'm always like, how do they get that to work? But does it frustrate you to know that people are watching things on their phone and listening with earbuds when you know that the fidelity that they could have been hearing would be just out of this world? Like, I remember when I was a kid, you'd put on a record, let's just say... Oh, uh, Grand Funk Railroad, one of my favorites when I was a kid, right? Double, double kick bass. And I put, I got my, my dad's speakers that were about like waist high and I put them on either side of me and I would lay down <laughs> and you just, just listen, you know, um, it's gone today. We don't, we have earbuds. It's like, 
I don't know. Yeah, so what, what are your thoughts horribly, on that? Horribly frustrating. Uh, has been, uh, sadly, for you know a long time now. Yeah, uh, to, to see it, uh, to see what's happened, uh, and and especially, especially, you know, I think about kids uh, that that don't know any different. You know, yeah. you have the advantage of knowing. You know what what it could mm -hmm. be, and so on. Obviously, everyone in the professional recording knows because we spend all of our time in front of speakers, you know, mm -hmm. we're getting the sound the way we want it. But, you know, a lot of kids, they, they don't know, they don't know what they're missing. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. It's hard. I don't, I wish there was a way to um, bring that, I want to call it awareness or enlightenment, but I don't know. I just, it seems like it's a, you know, a bygone time. It's just, uh, it's gone. And that, that's what I'm, that, that's the biggest impetus, I think, for me with regard to this Bravura Records that I started is the, is that very idea. And so as a result, I've done, I've got six records done and I've got uh, some unbelievable jazz stuff, but, but jazz is easy, honestly, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of players are used to playing all together and live and whatnot. And so I, I'm, my favorite album so far that I've got is by a young, young guy, a young kid, a singer songwriter that's a, a straight up pop record and so uh i'd love to think that you know i know the hi-fi community is screaming for what i have mm. uh, uh but uh you know it couldn't spread to the rest of the real world i don't know but boy if yeah any kids could hear what we're talking about you know and and you can get stuff so inexpensive you know you can you can really get some really good stuff inexpensively these days it's just a yeah. matter of doing it it is mind blowing. I'll, I'll just share this to to the listeners. If you haven't taken the time to listen with some really decent speakers, you're missing out. Put the earbuds away. Give the room some space and let the air move and feel it all around you. That's one of the things I love about orchestras too. Is um, you feel it like when I've when I've conducted, it's all that vibration on your body is amazing it's not just yes. an ear experience oh my gosh yes you know what i love uh so i'm you know when we get off the air i'm going to hit you up to let me record uh, some stuff because i love recording film scores and, and mm. orchestra stuff i i've i've done a lot but not anywhere near what i wanted to do but mm -hmm. every time if someone comes to visit uh and on the stage i'll say go out and listen for 10 minutes and then yes. come inside and hear just exactly how bad an engineer i am yeah, it, I do understand because when you go out, my first experiences, you know, going out and listening to the live orchestra on the stage, and then you come back into the, the control room, it, it is a night and day difference. And it's like, it's kind of disappointing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, and I've said this many times, you know, we, uh, it starts, I suppose, with the fact that, that for some reason, we haven't been able to develop a, a, a man a, a, a system for reproducing speakers that is i mean we're basically using speakers that with 80 year old 90 year old technology i mean we still have wow. flapping bits of paper for crying yeah, out loud right yeah and you, if you if we can't you know we wouldn't know what a better microphone is unless you have a better speaker you, you have right. to be able oh to gosh. know that something is better you know you the to the resolution to get the resolution of everything up but uh yeah, you know, surround definitely helps. That begins mm -hmm. to help. It's it's sort of synthetic what you really mm -hmm. hear there. But no, there's there's nothing like a, a, a good sounding room with a great orchestra. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, it's yeah. I mean, even I was at Capitol last week um, uh, doing a big band, thirteen horns, right? Oh, fun! And, yeah, uh, it was basically the Gordon's big fat band, okay. and I and I uh, with Wayne Bergeron on top. You know, must know Wayne. Um, and, um, who, by the way, had the same uh, cancer I did funny enough. Oh, wow. Uh, he's doing great too. Anyway. And there was something in the sax section that was bugging me. And so I did what any good engineer should do. I went out and listened in the room and there it was, I'm out there with these guys. I'm in front of the saxes, but I'm here, obviously I'm hearing everybody. And I go back in the control room and it's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's Mickey Mouse. Because yeah. 13 horns in a room is just an amazing sound. Yeah, power, such power. Power. When I was in college, uh, my first, I, I originally went to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and that's when I started, uh, I was a hockey player, so I started playing there, and I was also a trumpet player, and so I was in 
the band, and it was a huge brass-focused university because Walter Chestnut, the the head of the brass department, was a trumpet player and, and on and on. But the first time I was in a room, it was a big room with, good Lord, it was a brass ensemble, I don't know, 50, maybe... 13 trumpet players and you just go down and they're all punching it. It, it, I felt like a cartoon where my hair was <laughs> blowing back off of my head. Yeah. I have never felt such power like, uh, uh, like what brass can do when they're all together like that. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, Bill, this has been really fun chatting with you. Uh, I, and I know we didn't really get, too much of your journey. I, I, I want to, um, you know, just, uh, be respectful of your time. And, uh, and I'll just say to everybody to get Bill's book, uh, chairman at the board, you'll hear a lot more of his story. It is not a how to book, you know, honestly, if you want a how to listen to his material, that's, that's the how to you'll, you'll, you'll be able to hear the differences and, uh, but uh, it's really been an honor and a pleasure to chat with you. And um, I'm telling you, next time I'm out visiting my children in Nashville, I'm going to look you up. Okay, great. I hope you do. Thanks for coming on the show, Bill. Again, thanks for having me. Well, like I said, what an amazing human being. And what I mean by amazing is that I guess sometimes I have these expectations of people who have had this much experience and have interacted with these many stars to not be so grounded. And Bill is grounded. Yeah, man, it was a great conversation. Uh, I really hope our paths do cross, Bill. I look forward to it. All right, everybody, pick up his book, Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Find it, listen to it, read it if that's your flavor. Check it out. All right, next week, actor, voice actor, Diana Lansling. I'm thrilled to introduce you to her story. We had a fabulous conversation, and I can't wait to share it. Okay, in the meantime, as always, take care of yourself. This COVID thing is still around. All right, remember, if he's doing it, why not you? <laughs> <laughs>